Friends, thank you so much to those of you who have already responded to our listener survey. This is so important. And in fact, one very close friend of the podcast has responded directly to me via a WhatsApp. That's not how we're encouraging you to respond. But let's listen to what she said. Paul, are you with us? Just checking. Yeah, I'm totally here. What, what could it be? That I can't be worse than the last one. Hello, Outrage and Optimism. It's Lucy Siegel here. I am a super fan of the podcast, as I hope you know. I've been moved to send you this message because one of the things that would make your brilliant podcast even more brilliant would be if Paul sang more. Yes, more. He has a rare, slightly unquantifiable uh, uh, voice and talent, vocal talent, which is unmatched anywhere in the climate sphere. So I'm directly contradicting Richard Walker, MD of Iceland, the store, not the country, who you heard from last week. And I'm saying, let Paul sing freely. Bye. Let Paul sing freely. Paul, how do you feel? Oh, Lucy, thank you so much for for drawing people's (laughs) attention to the survey. And, um, you know... Please give us your hopes. The links in the show notes help make our podcast better for you. <laughs> Lucy, what have you done? That was very, that was beautiful, Paul. Remarkable. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Please respond to the listener survey. It's really important. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you, Paul. Here we go. Links in the show notes. Welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivett Karnak. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, Christiana will be here, but she's not here right now. However, we will carry on regardless. This week, we... <laughs> it's going well so far, Tom. She's not with us for, like, even for a minute and then the whole thing collapses. This week, we talk about the Climate Ambition Summit and we hear about the race to zero in 2021. Plus, we speak to Vice President of the European Commission, Franz Timmermans. And we have music from Reese Lewis. Thanks for being here. So, Paul, the bad news is that Christiana's not with us at this precise moment. However, the good news is that most of this episode consists of times when we're talking to people and those we recorded earlier today. So, actually, she does feature on this episode, but we're going to have to try to maintain decorum for the next five minutes before we go to the episode. How do you feel our chances are? Uh, low. Uh, Christiana brings a sort of dignity. <laughs> uh, she has dignity. She has respect. She has, you know, uh, a kind of stellar intellect and complete command of all the data. And uh, and you and I make each other slightly nervous. But um, having said that, I do think it's an incredibly good time. So can I just like dive in with the sort of like, I know I'm always saying it's a good time, but specifically, can I tell you why? Please. All right. So we've had the incredible Climate Ambition Summit where only, you know, people making big commitments got to speak and there were huge commitments. And essentially, we could talk about it in detail, but the the big point for me is now is a time for everyone listening to this podcast, all of us, to, to come forward with radical proposals. You know, big parts of the world are committing to like net zero, giant reductions by 2030. So all those things you thought were kind of crazy or would never work or would never fly a few years ago, now's the time for you to bring them forward, get them in the budget for next year, go and stand up at that meeting, tell everyone that we're going to do it, you know, out of the box. It's all now allowed. This is like day zero and we're going to do things differently from now on. So I'm feeling very energized and excited. Excellent. All right. I like that. I like the idea of standing up on day zero and committing to big new things. That's what we've got to do, right? And it's worth remembering, actually, you know, because often, you know, people who um, care about these issues can fall into the trap of feeling like the future is always worse than the past, right? We're always destroying the environment more. We're always going down this road where things degrade. Actually, five years ago, and we've been so reminded of this this week and in last week's episode, because it's been five years since the Paris Agreement, two degrees felt basically impossible, let alone 1.5. Net zero by the middle of the century was an absolute moonshot. Whereas now what we've seen is that has really been pulled into the present. Right now, 51% of global emissions are covered by a net zero commitment. If Biden does what he says he's going to do, then that will be 63%. We're not there. 
But this is a big step up in the last few years. Action is unfolding quickly. Increased commitment is unfolding quickly. There is a lot here to feel really confident about. The old principle that actually setting a target and innovating your way towards it with a series of increasingly ambitious steps seems to be working in this scenario. So that is, I would say, really exciting. And actually, where better to go first in this conversation? And I will give you a moment to say what you obviously think you want to say, Paul. But before I do that, well, after you say that, we're going to go to a conversation with our old friend, Nigel Topping, the high-level champion for climate action. But first of all, Mr. Paul Dickinson. The only thing I wanted to add, uh, Tom, is... From all of those commitments comes this sort of structural uh, advance. People like Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, talking about having a referendum to put climate change into the French constitution. Or, for example, this incredible, uh, well, the FT reporting that the EU emissions trading scheme is now up to 31 euro a tonne. That's fantastic news for geeks like me who follow that kind of stuff. Back up where it should be, where it makes a real change on behaviour. And finally, I want, to, I want to shout out for the Countess In campaign, where Cristiano and others are doing amazing work getting the public to think about this, not least with my dear friends at Geeky Zero, where you can go and calculate how to reduce your emissions. It's all Love looking Geeky good. Zero. Okay, good. I'm glad. Yeah. Thank you. That's that's, yeah, that's, yeah. that's rare yeah. praise. Well, there you go, yeah. fantastic yeah. team. I'm going to play about with a G-I-K-I, Geeky Zero. Tom. Yeah. Um, so, so right now we're going to hear from Nigel Topping and, and, and keen and, and attentive listeners to the podcast will know precisely who Nigel is. But if you haven't listened to the full back catalogue, first of all, you're going to get a chance in January when we have a bit of a break and we'd encourage you to delve into it. But secondly, Nigel is a very old friend of mine and Paul's and many others in the climate movement. He was appointed earlier this year as the UK's high level champion for climate action. That means he's basically responsible for everything in the climate negotiation COP process, apart from what national governments do. And the reason we invited him on today is that the work he's doing is going to be a very significant part of outrage and optimism in 2021. We have formed a partnership with Nigel and with the Race to Zero, the High Level Champions Office. Every month, we will bring you a special edition of Outrage and Optimism, where we will delve into the transformation that is unfurling as a result of the Race to Zero. What cities are doing, what businesses are doing, what investors are doing, where countries are going, to really help you understand how the world is preparing for COP26. Nigel is the man at the centre of all of that. So just as we round out 2020... To give you a sense of what those episodes are going to be like, here's a conversation that Christiana and I had with Nigel earlier today. Nigel, we're so happy that you're back on Outrage and Optimism, and we are looking forward to having you actually quite frequently next year since uh, Outrage and Optimism is going to be the partner podcast to Race to Zero. Honestly, you know, Tom and I worked on uh, on the, let's say, the chapter one of this mobilization of stakeholders to support what governments are doing or have to it do. It feels like a much earlier version of the technology, though, if you remember what we did. Yeah, it's sort of like we had the fax machine and um, and now you have cell phones, you know. Um, I was going to say it was pigeons. Yeah. Oh, pigeon. Well, maybe. But we are so delighted, so delighted and so excited about Race to Zero. That is not new for next year, has been going on already last year but is basically the mobilization of corporations, of financial sector, of everyone who is not a national government, which yeah. is the purview of the COP presidency. And so you have under your baton the um, amazing responsibility and opportunity to mobilize everyone else in what I used to call creating the surround sound effect yeah. to embrace national governments and give them the confidence and the comfort to take on the ambitious decisions that they all have to make at COP26. So, Nigel, race to zero. Well, it's 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 two things, really. It's First of all, it's just like the creation of a massive signal from, as you say, everyone who's not a government saying, we understand the science, we know it's inevitable, and we're on it. We're doing it. We're committed to getting to zero in the 2040s or earlier if we can. Every day earlier is better. We know that. Um, and, and, and we're making great progress, right? We have thousands of businesses, cities, universities, investors, um, all, all committing. 
But what it's also, and that's what we're going to really be exploring in, in, in these special podcasts, and I'm really excited about partnering with you guys on it, is it's also, in every sector, a detailed roadmap of how we get there. Mm. So it's, it's great to say we're going to get to zero in 2045 or 2039. But, but how? It, but how, and especially what are you going to do in the next five years? Yeah. And that's the really exciting thing we're going to be exploring. And I think that's different about the race to zero as you've conceived it compared to previous kind of collective campaigns, right? There's been sign-up campaigns for a long time, but how do you do it? What's the roadmap? How do you partner together? And that's what we'll, as you say, unpick. I mean, listeners may be familiar with the episodes we've been doing already on the, the future of transportation that we do in partnership with Neste. This will be a much broader series of conversations. We'll have you, we'll have a range of others, and we'll dig into these sectoral transformations week by week to really unpack what's happening. And I think the the fun thing about this how, Nigel, is um, we have to wrap our minds around the complexity of this transformation. This is not about one company moving forward. Yes, each company must, and many are. But the fact is that we will only get to halving our emissions if that company that is the leader functions as the leader and the promoter of an ecosystem change. If we get the ecosystem of that particular company in that particular sector to actually move forward. Otherwise, we just have basically pilot projects with each company moving forward or each sector. And we are done with pilot projects. This is now about normalizing decarbonization. Yeah, and the exciting thing is that when we get whole ecosystems moving, the change that was going painfully slowly four years ago suddenly explodes exponentially. You know, right. I mean, we we talked before about uh, about the this transformation in electric vehicles. Just in the last couple of months, we had the UK government saying they're going to phase out combustion engines in 2030, and then last week. We had the CEOs of the seven European truck manufacturers, mm. truck manufacturers, right? Not cars, trucks, all saying 2040. So but that means basically now by 2040, there will be no combustion engines built in Europe ever again. And that four years ago, the IEA was saying it'll be the 2070s. So I said, you know, the future's come forward by 40 years in four years. But as you say, Christiana, it's not one company. It's a bunch of companies on the supply side, the demand. It's cities. They've had a huge role. Mayors saying we want clean air. It's ministers of transport. It's investors. I'm talking to BlackRock later today. That Larry Fink's just said they in their in their new um, stewardship guidelines that they're going to be expecting every company to demonstrate that their plans are in line with net zero by 2050. So all all mm. of those forces all swirling around all add up to really accelerate a change. So as we unpack this and we communicate with people listening to the podcast throughout the course of next year in the lead up to crucial COP26, and of course, you'll be working to get all of these different stakeholders to be as ambitious as possible so that we can kind of wrap our arms around a whole of society outcome and see in COP26 just how momentous this is. What do you hope this will achieve? What's the, why, why communicate with this level of detail with all of these listeners? What's the outcome? Well, look, I think we've made a huge transformation in the overall levels of ambition to net zero in the 2040s, in just in the last six months. Politically, a lot, you know, we've seen it, EU, UK, um, China, South Korea, Japan, now a new administration in America. But everybody knows that grand commitments to long-term targets is not enough. So yeah. we're going to keep building that signal because we need more and more and more until everybody's made that commitment. But we really got to get into, okay, what's it going to take in the next five years? Who's doing what? And how can we both build awareness of what needs to happen so that more people commit and build confidence that it's happening? Because um, that's also the confidence that it is happening is something which makes it easier for more people to yeah. commit, right? Because it, 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 if all my competitors are doing it, if every other country is doing it, it doesn't feel as uncomfortable sticking my neck above the parapet. Awesome. It's going to be fun. Thanks so much for doing this with us. This will be throughout the course of 2021, right to the end. We're going to look at all these different sectoral transformations. We're also going to drop in deep dives in where countries are and how they're doing in their enhanced NDC. So we'll be looking at it from both angles under this overall umbrella of this partnership with you and Race to Zero. We're so excited about working with you on this throughout 2021. But hold on, Tom. We better make sure that this is not only nerdy. It will be nerdy because we will be sharing a lot of information. But if it's not fun, I don't want to do it. So we better make it both nerdy 
and fun. Really, Christiana, we, we have you down for the sort of the transformation of the steel sector and we're hoping you'll spend 60 minutes going into the details of material science. So. <laughs> Well, thanks so much. Nigel, we're <laughs> delighted to be doing this with you. Well, I tell, Thank you for the opportunity. Well, I'm, I'm really delighted. You know, actually, just this morning, I was talking to Ava Greiner, who's the head of the E-Drive program at Mercedes, because she, she was on that. We had, we had these Race to Zero dialogues, and we had youth setting the agenda. So we had young people challenging executives. And, you know, there are... We can we can get nerdy, but there are lots of people who um, have got very exciting stories to tell about how they're dedicating their whole careers to this yeah. transformation. So I think I think we can have a lot of fun and really bring it to life. So I'm really looking forward. Thank you. Yay! Cool. So I mean, amazing to see how Nigel is now embracing this role. Paul, you know him well. What did you think listening to that? Look, Nigel's a fantastic human being. He's a mathematician. He's got this great background in industry. I had the privilege to work with him at CDP for many years. And then he was leading We Mean Business. And there's, there's something incredibly infectious about him. And he brings forward or brings out of people um, their energy and their commitment and their dynamism and their belief that they can get things done. So um, I was just inspired by his energy and his clarity of thinking and his ability to just sort of point us all in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. And I just think, you know, that that role of high-level climate action champion was, of course, created in the Paris Agreement. And there's mm. been a series of very impressive people who have held that role and really done a lot. But it wasn't until, and don't forget, this is the first genuinely consequential cop since Paris. But Nigel coming in and taking that role, I mean, there could be nobody better at this moment to bring the whole world together. I mean, he's built this enormous infrastructure of people who are just working away. I believe he stole your chief operating officer, Francis Way, from CDP to we, come we, and we, run. We, we see no, we, in an ideal world, there's no difference between the organisation I work for and many others in the UN system. We want to, and the, and, the, and the governmental system, we are all in service of this goal that government represents. So, uh, yes, stole. That's very, very generous of you, Paul. But anyway, so great. And we're so excited about everything we're going to be doing with Nigel in 2021. Now to our main interview for this week, and we are so thrilled to bring you this conversation today with Franz Timmermans, who is the first vice president of the European Commission. And I don't mean that by saying he is the first one to hold the office. He is the principal vice president of the European Commission. So Franz Timmermans was formerly the Minister of Foreign Affairs for the Netherlands from 2012 to 2014 in the second Rutte cabinet and State Secretary for Foreign Affairs prior to that. He now serves as the first Vice President of the European Commission, serving, of course, under President Ursula von der Leyen. He is a passionate advocate, as you're going to hear, for the European Green Deal. In fact, he campaigned for his role on the basis of his support for that. It's a huge part of his identity as a politician and what he's going to be fighting for. Uh, he has just been one of the great champions on the world stage in recent months, taking over the mantle, of course, from previous leaders who've held that position. And we were so thrilled to speak to him so soon after this enormously consequential decision by the European Council to shift the 2030 target to 55% net emissions reductions. This is a great conversation. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Franz Timmermans. Uh, Tom, just one thing to add is uh, Franz was like all of us at home. And uh, although he's got a lovely European commission background uh, actually there are huge dogs barking all the way through and we asked france about this and he said there's nothing that can be done okay paul here's the interview friends thank you so much for joining us on outrage and optimism today we hope you have uh meanwhile recuperated from the marathonic negotiations inside the EU to decide on what your new NDC target is going to be, which you then proudly announced on Saturday, last Saturday at the Climate Ambition Summit. Um, could, could we start there and then we'll, we'll go to the European target, but we would love to, to hear your impressions about the climate Ambition Summit, a, a rather unique way of, uh, of, of pulling countries together, so both celebrating the fifth anniversary of the Paris Agreement, but also in lieu of the COP that would have taken place this year had we not had COVID. So a very, uh, a very interesting way of mobilizing further ambition. What was your impression? Well, you know, if you, if you 
take it one year back and you, you see where we were when we announced the European Green Deal. So many people telling us it's uh, you're on your own, it's overambitious, it's not realistic. And you then look where we are now, um, you know, a lot, a lot was achieved. Uh, mm-hmm. China announcing uh, carbon neutrality by 2060, Japan 2050, Korea 2050, South Africa, very ambitious as well. And of course, the elections in the United States uh, with the Biden administration announcing to return to the Paris Agreement. So if you, if you look at it from that perspective, Saturday was really quite uh, remarkable. Um, uh, on the other hand, if you look at, at what new announcements were made, uh, Saturday was rather cautious or, or, or you know, not, 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 not many surprises. Uh, having said that, uh, I didn't expect any su- surprises because we're all preparing for COP in Glasgow in November exactly. next year. I, it's fun that you said no surprises. I was going to ask you, was there any surprise in all of those announcements for you? Truly no surprise. Not really. A confirmation of what we already knew. Um, I was really very attentive to what Xi Jinping had to say, but in fact, it was in line with what he had announced earlier. A bit more precise, exactly. which is always always helpful, but not more, more ambitious than what he said. Exactly, exactly. Well, it it would have been surprising had he become more ambitious in just a couple of months, right? So I yeah, think, and, and and we're all uh, now working said, on 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 what our commitments actually mean in practice, and that's what China is doing. That's what we're doing, um, so that we have these these um, uh, reinforced NDCs, uh, national determined contributions, and uh, that we are better prepared for Glasgow because I think that's where we have to show whether we're really, really on track to uh, comply with our with our commitments uh, under the Paris Agreement. Yes. Yes. Well, and let's talk about that NDC, the nationally determined uh, contribution uh, from from the EU, because you came out after many, 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 many hours of negotiations, or rather days, weeks, months. Um, you just barely made it to be able to announce on the Saturday, um, and Europe has come out with a net fifty five reduction of greenhouse gases against 1990 levels. Um, A a target, um, France, that uh, is very ambitious for some and doesn't go far enough for others. So, you know, I I think if if you're neither pleasing uh, any of the two extremes, you can probably feel that you came in where you had to. But, um, But we would love to hear from you the difficulties, you know, I mean, it, it just sounds, it, it rolls off the tongue, right? Net 55 reduction against 1990, but it's a huge deal. Um, and, and having witnessed for so many years the complexities of the EU being a region uh, that brings together many, many different economies with very different structures, very different natural resources, very different energy matrices. It's not easy to get an overall agreement on uh, on what is going to happen with emissions. So would love to know from you, how do you feel about it? What were the challenges that, were, that you were all able to um, conquer and where do you see this moving forward? Well, first of all, let me let me briefly explain why we got to minus 55. Um, when we prepared this, we did what we call in, in our jargon an impact assessment. We went and, and looked at what could be done, uh, what this means for the different sectors, where industry is at, what we're doing in the building environment, transport, agriculture. And then we looked at what we could do um, uh, being as ambitious as humanly possible from our perspective. And we came up with the minus 55 target, which in our view would also allow us to still with, stay within um, uh, the ambition uh, to be uh, climate neutral by 2050, which is only in 30 years time. It's, it's a huge ambition. So if we don't do, if we do less than 55% uh, reduction, uh, we would have to do so much more in the last 10 years before 2050. That's almost impossible to do. If we do more, we would probably lose um, a couple of member states in, in the process. Um, uh, you know, you have to, you have to remember mm-hmm. that some member states in their energy mix, they have more than 50% renewables. 
Others, like Poland, they're at 80% coal in their energy mix. Coal. I mean, these are, these mm-hmm. are huge, huge differences within the European Union. And we need, you know, the, if the European Union is about anything, it's about bridging differences. And, and there's no use in, in, in isolating one or two member states because um, uh, they have a more difficult task. It's about creating enough solidarity at EU level so that everybody can make it. And I think we, in our analysis, um, which I think was was brutally honest, um, uh, we came to the conclusion it's feasible. And I think this is something that most member states, even those who initially didn't want to embrace that conclusion, they came to the conclusion, that, yeah, it's feasible and let's do it. Uh, I think um, a couple of determining factors. First of all, uh, the analysis is is very clear and it's difficult to, to, to just uh, push it away. Secondly, because we're also in this pandemic and uh, Europe has been able to mobilize um, uh, 1,800 billion euros of investment potential uh, for a limited period of time, uh, those member states who have the biggest task just made a political calculation saying, well, this money is now on the table. This transition will have to happen. Uh, If we join it now, we can get a bigger share of that money and we can use that money to actually make a transformation which has become inevitable anyway. I think the determining factor here might have been that um, everybody came to understand that there's no future in coal. I remember saying this in Germany uh, two years ago uh, in in the Saarland, saying there's no future in coal. And people were shocked that somebody from the commission, the first vice president of the commission, saying there's no future in coal. Oh my (laughs) God, horrible. And now even in Poland, they have a coal uh, phase-out uh, plan. So uh, I think this is the issue of coal has really, really um, also accelerated uh, this development. So, yeah, uh, I think it's it's positive, um, minus 55. But then, of course, uh, there's all sorts of devils and all sorts of details that need to be worked out now. Um, and this is what we're going to be doing in the next couple of months leading up to the summer, coming up with concrete proposals on emission reductions, on energy efficiency, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Franz, t- uh, Tom, uh, Tom is chomping at the bit yeah, right. uh, to ask you a question, but <laughs> could I um, take you one step farther? What do you think was decisive for Poland? As you say, 80% coal. What is decisive for Poland when they look into the future? How do they come to the conclusion that they can also not rely on coal uh, in the future? What, 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 what is that shift in mindset that occurs there? Well, first of all, um, they're um, losing billions uh, because nobody's buying the coal. Even the, the Polish energy sector is buying coal in Russia rather than using Polish coal. Uh, so they really have a problem, and and the, the coal mining regions know this extremely well. And they and secondly, Poland has uh, a lot of experience with transition. Um, and now that they see that there are funds available for a transition that they've now come to the, see as completely inevitable, they sort of jump on the bandwagon and say, "Okay, help us with this transition. Use the just transition yeah. fund. Use other funds, and and we will look for another economy uh, uh, in in those coal mining regions." Thirdly. It's a country of engineers, uh, and they, they also see opportunity in this um, uh, because this new economy that we're working on, we're, we're also in the middle of, a, of an industrial revolution. Let's not forget that. We will need new industry, and they see opportunity there as well, and they hope that the coal mining regions can be the basins for, 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 for new industries. And finally, extremely important in Poland is the issue of air quality. Um, um, the air quality in Polish cities is horrible. And uh, on a European level, more than 400,000 people die prematurely every year because of bad air quality. And in, in Poland is particularly hit because of its energy mix. And it's also politically unsustainable for any party to have any future in that country if you don't have an active policy in improving air quality. You, you lose all the young generations. And and whether it's a party in power or the opposition, they know that in the long run, they will need young people to vote for them. And the only way to do that, one of the very few ways to do that, is to show that you do something about air quality. Hmm. Wow, that's that's very interesting. No, um, thank you, Christiane. I mean, honestly, if I'm chomping at the bit to ask you a question, the main question is, coming from a country that has now got a media that's talking about gunboats in the channel to protect the remaining fishes. Please can pull a nice day in Europe, but I'm going to resist the temptation to go there. And um, I actually want to ask you about uh, a small element that was in the announcement that talked about 
carbon tax border adjustments. Now, I know this is not a new thing, but it was reiterated in that document that came out and basically said that in certain scenarios, legislation or regulation would be considered that would actually provide a tax at the border in or if other countries weren't meeting the same level of ambition. So I just want to draw you out on that a bit and ask what sorts of scenarios can you see where that mechanism could be deployed? I mean, we are seeing some countries around the world now not being as ambitious as we otherwise might have expected that. What sorts of timescales and what would that look like and how likely do you think it is that that will be needed? Well, this carbon border adjustment mechanism is something that we've been working on for a while and we'll continue to work on it. First, it's extremely complicated to get it right. So what we want to do is the following. We look at what other countries are doing and we we just show what we will be doing to comply with the Paris Agreement in all the sectors, specifically per sector. And if we then see that international partners who've also committed to Paris but are not willing to take the necessary steps, create a situation where we risk either carbon leakage, which means industry leaving Europe to go there because they can produce cheaper, or uh, uh, they unlevel uh, the playing field uh, in terms of competition. So uh, if that happens, if one of these two or both of them happen, then we will have to protect our industry uh, by having um, a measure at the border. And that's the calm border adjustment. But if we do it in, in such a way that we study per sector where this is happening and can demonstrate that it's happening, then I also believe we can do this in full conformity of WTO rules, uh, World Trade Organization rules. Um, and, and it has to be surgical. It has to be very precise per mm. sector, whether it's steel or cement or aluminium or other sectors, where you could demonstrate that there is the risk of carbon leakage or there is unfair competition. Got it. Just just to follow up on that, I mean, you you know, you, you as the largest market in the world, you may well have an influence on others around the world. And, and that leadership of the EU, I'd just like to really salute you for the leadership of the European Union in the, on this critical issue. I just want to change the, the topic slightly. Um, the global financial crisis in 2008 caused enormous economic hardship for, for many millions of people. COVID-19 uh, is actually doing the, exacerbating many of those problems. Uh, now, you know, many of the political upsets we've noticed on climate are set by sort of desperate reactions to economic disadvantage. Now, you yourself have previously stated that what politics boils down to essentially is an issue of redistribution. Exactly. So can I ask you, how will you make sure that the EU Green Deal addresses this fundamental issue? Well, I think, uh, you know, if you're in, in into politics, and especially if you believe in, in open societies and if you believe in democracy and if you believe we have a huge task in fighting off um, would-be autocrats and, and populists, mm. you have to fix the underlying problem. You have to ask yourself, you, have, you know, it's not enough to, to, to point at them and say that they're bad people and, 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 and they smell badly or whatever you want to say. You have to ask yourselves, why are they attractive? Yeah. Why are uh, politicians attractive who challenge the system or the elites, etc. Because too many people in our society feel society is not working for them. And this is something that's been coming uh, for a long, long time. This hasn't happened because of the climate crisis or because of, 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 of uh, the migration crisis we had in 2015. It's, it's I believe, sadly inherent to a political system that believed in trickle-down economics, which was, which was a nonsensical view. Um, and so, you know, it's been trickle up uh, economics uh, over the last 30 years. And, you, <laughs> yeah. you, you, you know, you see people people making making a lot of money with capital and in, and in a decreasing way, being able to have a decent life just by working. Uh, you know, if you compare um, the lives of middle class people, whether it's in Britain or Europe or in the United States today with, let's say, the 1960s or 70s, it's a completely different world. Um, you know, you could, you could in, in those days, you could maintain a family with one income. Uh, uh, try and do that. Uh, if you look at young people across the Western world, you see, they can't own a house anymore. They can't even rent a, a place anymore if they're unlucky. Uh, I mean, these are, I, I'm just pointing to a few elements in this. Um, but this is contributing to this fact that this social contract, any society is based on the social contract. And people are asking themselves, did I ever sign this? And if I signed it, why is it working for me? And I, I think if, if you don't understand this fundamental problem, all the things we're trying to fix will not work. First, you have to, redistribution has to be reinvented 
in light of the fact that it didn't work, in light of the fact that we now have a um, re-evaluation of public policies, you know, we think uh, uh, differently about school teachers, about nurses, about doctors, we think differently about housing. Uh, this is going to have a huge effect on, on politics in the time to come. And we need to combine this with a need to recalibrate uh, uh, our relationship with the natural environment. It's also a matter of redistribution. Mm. And, and if we, it, it, the, the, the thing is, the complication is, we have to do everything in one go if you want to get it right. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that is what I believe is the quintessential question of our age in terms of politics. Can we get this right? So I think, I think we, we are, the crisis we're facing goes way beyond the climate crisis, way beyond the biodiversity crisis. It has to do with a profound institutional crisis we're affected with. Mm. And, and, you know, whatever you think of Brexit, uh, this is how I explain Brexit as well. Well, we often talk about Brexit and Trump in the same phrase, in fact. And if I may uh, compliment you, I think the the degree of passion and clarity and force with which you express yourself on this issue gives me high confidence that the European Union will be looking to develop policies that do cause this industrial transformation to help address this critical problem. We will certainly try, but I I have to confess, I have my moments of desperation as well. You know, it's... um it's, it's the, uh, the, the, the fact is that too many people in our society don't understand that this is a fundamental ideological battle going on. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the fact is that those who advocate a policy based on identity and on finding scapegoats and finding an enemy are trying to recreate a sense of community that is lost. So the fact that people are trying to recreate a sense of community is not a bad thing. The only thing is, if you do it in a diverse society by creating enemies within and without, you yeah. you set you set society up for violence, and 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 no solution will be found. Uh, but the the fact that people are trying to look for a sense of community could be a force for good if you if you could make that inclusive community, if you could show that you know nobody will be left behind. Yeah. Uh, if we can prove that con- concretely, nobody being left behind, then the sense of community will not be based on tribal thinking or ethnic thinking. Uh, but, but that's what's happening today. And that, that I think is, is, is scary. If you look at the rise of anti-Semitism everywhere, if you look at the rise of nationalism and, and, and scapegoating, I don't know who and... You know, I, I've always thought, you know, a bit in line with, with Dr. Martin Luther King, that, you know, the arc of justice is long, but it, 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 it tends towards uh, uh, justice. I'm, I'm not so sure if, if, if we see what's happening around the world, it might be even longer than we thought if we don't mm. correct it. Political leadership really matters at those moments, right? I mean, that's when you see the colours come through of the individuals that hold elected office, because actually either you can reach a scenario where it tips into these self-referential ideological structures that are basically based on excluding others, or you can actually have a leadership that embraces the future. So, and that's in some parts of the world, we've really struggled with that recently. Well, I think we struggle with that everywhere. Um, uh, and, and uh, you know, the way I see history is that uh, these things are, are decided uh, not by the activists who go one side or the other, but, but by mobilizing the majority of people hmm. um, uh, to move in the right direction. Um, you know, uh, I'd sound silly, but, but one of the, the 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 leading thoughts I've had on this, uh, you know, I'm I'm a scholar of 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 the 1920s, 30s, and 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 40s, and you know, 10% of the people will do the right thing under any condition, under any condition. 10% of the people will do the wrong thing under any condition, <laughs> and 80% of the people can be convinced to do either one or the other. Is is my is my deep conviction as a, as a, as a scholar of history. Yeah. And and so we have a lot of work to do to convince people that you know this is in their own interest. And sometimes you know you plant a tree, but you'll never sit in the shadow of that tree. But your children and your grandchildren will, and and that's a good thing to do. And and since we are becoming increasingly prisoners of the here and now, doing something that will only lead to a good result for the next or the uh, um, the next generation or even a generation later. Is not very fashionable in politics, um, but we we need to we need to re refine this this feeling. I'm doing this not for myself, but for my kids and my grandkids. 
Which brings me, friends, to the climate pact that you've uh, just uh, announced two days ago, because that truly is about mobilizing individuals, mobilizing public support, hopefully getting that 80% that is so critical, as you say, 10% will never be moved, 10% are there already, uh, but it's that 80%, that big fat middle uh, that uh, that is interested, but uh, but but is not engaged in the transformation that we all have to accelerate. So I would love to hear uh, from the perspective that you have just painted for us. What does the climate pact mean? Uh, we're delighted, of course, that it's a partnership with Countess In Campaign. That it is about citizen action. It's very much about trickle up, to use your your word. It's about trickle up action, um, and it's and love to to hear you unpack that. How how do we mobilize these citizens, and how do we trickle it up to what corporations and governments have set themselves uh, to do? Well, first of all, a couple of years ago, I was I was always worried about climate deniers and, and also the financing campaigns of those who didn't like climate policy, uh, finding some 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 uh, eccentric scholars uh, saying that there is no climate crisis, etc. But climate denial has sort of gone out of fashion. Uh, what I fear today is not climate denial. What I fear today is desperation, climate desperation. You know, uh, people saying it's too late anyway, and and I, I'm just a person. What can I do, etc. And and this is this is what I want to 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 stand up against, um, uh, because I believe these people are, are. If you give them a reason to act, and if you show that what they do actually has a, a positive impact, I think we can mobilize them uh, and and wider society. So so the climate pact is about being able to inform each other of what can be done. And then to translate that very much into, I'm doing this, if you do that, and we join in doing that, we can really make a difference. That, that's one element in, in this. And we can count it, we can count it. Uh, yeah, it, it, it becomes empirical. It becomes something you can showcase. Um, and then, of course, you need to exchange best experiences, uh, because most of the experiences with climate policy are made at local level. It's not a global level. I mean, I mean, Antonio Guterres making wonderful speeches is great. It's really helpful. But the actual actions of cities and, and communities, etc., cetera, are, are, are really making a difference. And, and others might want to join that or might want to become inspired by that or might want to see that it's uh, good for their economy or for their society uh, uh, to do that. Now, where I draw, uh, one of the reasons I, I, I thought we, we needed to do this, um, we can't all be David Attenborough. Um, um, but he did something incredibly remarkable. When I when I came out with my idea of, of a plastics, single-use plastics uh, legislation in Europe, I was cautioned by everyone, have you gone completely bonkers? You want to interdict plastic straws. Is that Europe being big on big things? Plastic straws, plastic bag, what are you talking about? Um, you, 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 the, the tabloids in the UK will feast on it. Um, Etc. Uh, Etc. Et but then I think because of David Attenborough, because even the, the same tabloids were on board uh, in fighting mm. single-use plastics, we created sort of a public movement of people saying, "Hey, I can do that. I can do without straws. I can take other straws. Uh, I can. I can do without plastic cutlery. I can do without these plastic plates. We have alternatives." And it inspired and us to feel good about themselves doing that. Exactly. And we, we drafted legislation and in eight months time, usually it takes two years for EU legislation to get adopted. In eight months time, we got it through parliament and through, through the governments uh, because there was a public movement behind it. And that's how I would exactly. ideally see the climate movement. Politicians doing the right thing but being also pushed by the public to do more of the right thing. Mm, yeah. 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 And I, ho I hope the climate pact can contribute to that. And also, you know, I, I think um, NGOs rightfully are very suspicious of corporates uh, uh, being in this. But I believe the corporate world has woken up to this idea yeah. and, and many of them are doing the right thing and they deserve credit for that, or at least they deserve a podium where they can show what they're doing and perhaps convince uh, the more skeptical um, activists that they might uh, be able to form an alliance with them. So that's yeah. where, how I want to use it. Well, we, we certainly love that. We have heard from many 
Uh, and it's certainly what we believe and have actually experienced that once you take action, and sometimes the action is as tiny as giving up plastic straws or uh, or giving up red meat for one day until you go to two days, three days, four days. But there are steps. Everyone can take a step, two steps, three steps. Uh, and that's what we have seen, that as soon as you take some action, then you begin to feel so much better about yourself, more engaged and more open to taking further and further steps. It really is a very interesting shift in mindset that occurs from desperation as you were uh, and despair as you were talking about it to agency. I can actually contribute to this. It's fascinating to see. Would you allow me to add something to that? Please do. One of the mistakes we've made as politicians, and I take full responsibility for that, over the last, let's say, 15, 20 years, is to increasingly treat citizens as customers that need mm. satisfaction, gratification, etc. And increasingly, citizens have started to see politics as the ones who provide instant gratification, etc., etc. Now, the only way we're going to fix this, if people go back to the issue of being citizens. So yeah. you're not the customer mm -hmm. yep. taking a product. No, you're part of a system where you play your own role and you can ask things of, of politicians that they deliver, but you're also delivering yourselves or part of the problem yourselves. And you're not an outsider looking at something that's happening detached from you. You're part of that. Collective responsibility. Yes, Collective but, responsibility. But, but, but the reinvention of, of, of citizenship. Yes, and participation. Totally agree. Participation. Yes. You're part of this. You're not just somebody pressing a button and uh, uh, asking instant gratification. You're, you're forming this. You're, you're shaping this. But for that to happen, politicians also need to change. And well, we're going to have to keep an eye on that. Now, Christiana, do you have a very specific question for friends? Well, I do. But before we get to our final question, um, I'm very tempted, Franz, to ask you about uh, grandchildren, because you you come from a very interesting family where both of your grandfathers were Dutch coal miners, correct me if I'm wrong, where you have been such a staunch, staunch advocate for climate responsibility, uh, certainly for the benefit of the European and the world economy, but also on a very personal level because of grandchildren because of future generations. And I just wonder, what is your conversation with those little ones? Well, you know, Bob, I became a, a grandfather at the end of July for the first time. My grandson was born then. His, his, name is, his name is Case, a very Dutch name. Uh, <laughs> and I was holding him, and I, I never get to see him, obviously, because of this pandemic. But I, was, I, I got to hold him once, and I held him, and I was looking at him, and then it dawned on me that if we don't get started during the mandate I have now, if we don't get the legislation in place now, we'll never get to minus 55 in 2030. Yeah. And we can forget about getting to climate neutrality in, um, in uh, 2050. And, and then I, 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 I hold this, this little man in my, in my, in my arms. And I, I was thinking, you know, when when my grandfather held me in his arms in 1961, this was before going into a next shift uh, in the coal mine, and he had a completely he his only worry was how how is my grandson going to finish secondary school, an opportunity which I never had, and and I remember my granddad until he died and he saw me graduate from university. That was the only thing he was thinking about. How can my grandchildren have the opportunities I never had? And in a, it's, it's, it might sound strange, but it's sort of rewarding my granddad, saying, yes. I saw what you did, <laughs> and now I want to do the same thing for my grandchildren. How hmm. can I prove to them that they will have a world that's livable when they, when they grow up, when they're adults? And, and for that to happen, we need to act now. We cannot defer that. We cannot delay that. Because if we don't set it in motion right now, the Industrial Revolution is, is moving ahead at lightning speed. And if we don't shape that to be climate neutral, 
if we don't do that now, we can never fix it again. And then what kind of world do we give to our children and grandchildren? It would be a dereliction of duty if we did not act now. You pay your grandfather forward, not back. Exactly. Yes. Mm. Yes. Exactly right. So true. I need to, I so need to remember that one. <laughs> That's good. So that brings me to the final question that we always ask our guest friends. Uh, seeing the, the, the possibilities and, and you being a, such a compelling motor for change, uh, for good, on the one side and on the other side being entirely uh, knowledgeable on what could happen if we don't do our job now. Are you more on the optimistic side or on the outrage side? Well, you know, uh, I have a, a, a moral and political duty to be optimistic. Uh, but apart from that, I am mildly optimistic. Um, you know, humanity has overcome so many challenges in, in the past. Um, uh, you know, if, if you see how we reacted to this pandemic... What we were able, first of all, everybody ran in all different directions. And then we were able to mobilize uh, the best and brightest uh, of humanity to, to develop a vaccine at lightning speed, etc., uh, etc. Et if we can do that in a pandemic, and then we put our minds to the climate crisis and understand that there is no vaccine against the climate crisis, uh, but there are measures we can take to reset our society and our economy. If we would work on that with the same dedication as we did on the pandemic, we could solve this. You know, it's the technology is there. Help, the money's even there. The people are there. <laughs> we need to bring it all together. It's it's the 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 challenge is not a technological one. It's a political one. It's an mm. organizational one. Can we mobilize the willingness to do this? So uh, uh, all in all, I'm optimistic, um, but let's not let's not kid ourselves. There are huge risks um, between now and then of things. Some things will be disappointingly bad. Other things will be surprisingly good. Um, uh, something you know, who would have thought that sustainable energy, uh, that that wind and solar, would be as stupid as it is today five years ago? Nobody would have thought that. Amazing. But we will run into other difficulties. And to adapt to that and to develop global politics and European politics to be able to react to that, that is a challenge of our time. But at the end of the day, I remain optimistic. Humanity and especially Europeans, and I include Brits in that. Yes, uh, and I, thank actually, you. If I may, thank I you include, for that. I, I include Latin Americans into that. <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> We all come from the same stock at the end of the day. We're all humans. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, this challenge is huge, but humanity's potential to adapt and to change is also huge. So that makes me optimistic. And I have to be. Uh, I'm thinking of Case. I'm thinking of his generation. And uh, I don't want to, uh, you know, at the end of my life, I don't want to be, uh, I don't want Case to tell me, uh, Grandad, what did you do when you saw uh, the climate crisis? Mm. Uh, friends, that that's such beautiful words. The, the European Union is like a, a vast orchestra, the biggest economy in the world, and uh, it couldn't have a better conductor on this critical issue <laughs> to bring it all together. So thank you. Franz Timmermans, what a true pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you very much thank from you us for having me. and from Case. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. I mean, what a, what a privilege to get a chance to sit down and speak with Franz Timmermans. It, what a passionate advocate for the future. He's so motivated by his emotional connection to what it means in terms of whether or not we get on top of this issue with the time we still have available. I found that so motivating and so inspiring, um, which is not always the experience I have when I'm listening to politicians these days, I have to say. Um, Paul, where, where, where are you after that discussion? Well, I, I do think that, uh, you know, he's clear, he's inspiring, totally understands climate change and is doing such a great job of, of bringing the largest economic unit in the world together. Uh, uh, but I mean, I was really struck by how 
um, powerfully he is touched by the wealth equality inequalities we have in society at the moment and the some of the distortions that are happening as a result of that. And spoiler alert, I think this is going to come up in future podcasts. I think we've got issues, social issues at the moment that are interfering with our technocratic uh, and political abilities to deal with climate change. So uh, I'm just putting that one out there. But I, 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 you know, I asked France the question and he, you know, I asked him with kind of like about, you know, 10 units of energy and he came back with a thousand units of energy and I won't forget that. Yeah, that's exactly the bit I was going to pick up on as well. And I and I was impressed by the passion of it. I was also impressed by how it feels to talk with a politician and have them be unapologetic about the need for transformation. He's not a person that is characterized by extremist views. He's not been he's not polarizing in that way. He's regarded as somewhat centrist, but he was absolutely clear that this is what is necessary. This is about redistribution and how these different elements work together. Um, I liked I liked his endorsement of the phrase you gave him, uh, pay it forward instead of paying it back in regards to his grandfather and his new role as a grandfather himself. Uh, so I thought that was beautiful. Uh, but how wonderful to get a chance to chat with him. And I know Christiana was equally impressed and pleased that he's now holding the consequential role he is for these very important years. Mm, you know, there's a double meaning to the word keep. Like if I keep a promise to you, then I'm then I'm you know I'm I'm doing my duty. But if you if you give me a present, I can keep it for myself, hmm. and uh, you can play with that. Uh, hmm. The inf- the infinite promise of the future is ours to keep. And a keep is also a small guardhouse in a sort of Norman fort, isn't it? Well, I haven't yet managed to bring <laughs> to in that, that third in. aspect okay, of right, the yeah, metaphor. Yeah, okay. But if but we can, sorry. if we can yeah. have something involving climate change, uh, equity, duty, and time travel, then you know we could have a, an even more <laughs> yeah. uh, appropriate metaphor. But uh, just to drum it into you again, Karnak, not paying coming, attention in, at the back coming. of class. The infinite promise of the future is ours to keep. Very good. Um, Well, I'm going to give myself a round of applause for that. So thanks very much, everybody. (laughs) Right. This was a wonderful conversation with both Nigel and Franz Timmermans. But now, sadly, we are running out of time. So we're going to have to pivot, as we always do at the ends of these episodes, to this wonderful piece of music that we're bringing this week from Rhys Lewis. Rhys is a UK-based singer, songwriter and producer. His work has led to more than 400 million streams of his music. We are so pleased to bring you his beautiful piece of music, Better Than Today. And Reese is also deeply thoughtful about all the issues that we talk about in this podcast. We asked him what his motivation was for writing this song. And he replied, he considers himself to be optimistic, but struggles more and more to see the positives and remain hopeful in life. So when he's feeling frustrated with the state of the world, one belief he tries to hold on to is this, that even if we don't agree on what constitutes a better future, we all vote with the same good intentions at heart. The only way that we can better understand and learn from people with opposing opinions to our own is if we approach one another with empathy. So this song is a reminder to himself that even when we don't agree on how to make it so, we all want the future to be a better place. And we also asked him about what he thinks the artist's role is during the climate emergency. And he said the more he learns about climate change and the impact his lifestyle and career is having on the planet, the more responsibility he feels for changing that. It's definitely important to write music and create art that inspires people to engage with the climate crisis and shouting about it loudly and often on social media also makes such a difference. But ultimately, he says it's more important to be changing the way that we as artists operate. He says the artist's role in the climate emergency is the same ultimately as everyone else's. To do everything in your power to reduce your carbon impact on the planet as quickly as you can. This is Reese Lewis, better than today. Thanks for being here. I don't read the headlines, I don't watch the news, cause I lose faith in something every time that I do. I don't mean to bury my head in the sand, but I'm just trying to live this life as best as I can. Times get tough, but I don't give up, cause I 
Another episode, another, another episode of Outrage and Optimism. That was Reese Lewis with his tune, Better Than Today. I've got links in the show notes to check out more of his music and also tour dates. Uh, I think I'm saying that right. Is that right, guys? Yes. Tour dates he has in the diary next year. I like almost can't believe it. You can go check those out in the show notes. Click on stuff his music so speaking of show notes as i normally do to no end we have a listener survey that we need you to fill out uh we're planning things for season three and beyond and if you've made it this far in the podcast this survey was definitely made for you so if you fill it out we'll read what you have to say and then the podcast gets better it's basic math you know nigel knows okay and now time to say thank you many times in a row to people who deserve it Outrage and Optimism is a Global Optimism production, executive produced by Marina Mancilla-Germán and produced by me, Clay Carnell. Global Optimism is Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Lara Richardson, Sophie McDonald, Fran Newman, Sarah Thomas, Sharon Johnson, and John Ward. Oh, and sorry I didn't make the team meeting today. I was shoveling snow. And our hosts are Christiana Figueres, Tom Rivet-Karnak, and The Paul Dickinson. Special thanks this week to Yori Kesper and David Kiss for making this week's interview possible. And thank you to Nigel Topping, who you will definitely hear more from next year. We like Nigel. And of course, last but not least, thank you to our guest this week, Franz Timmerman. 
So shifting back over to social media, we are online and posting things, you know, very optimistic things, if I do say so myself, at Global Optimism on all social media, including LinkedIn. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we are so happy to hear so. Please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts and write us a review. It means a lot. Okay. So we have one more episode coming your way this year, and it is a fun one. Since 1825, the Royal Institute has hosted what are called the Christmas Lectures, which, if you're not from the UK, are a science-focused program for children and adults to both enjoy. Now, next week, we have on all three of the hosts for this year's program titled Planet Earth, A User's Guide. So, you know chestnuts roasting on an open fire, Jack Frost nipping at your nose, and uh, scientific experiments on your television? (laughs) No, seriously, it's one of the most fun and lively conversations we've had this year. You won't want to miss. Join us. Christmas Day. Hit subscribe. We'll see you then. (laughs) 